You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey, Merry Christmas, everybody. Can I hear just the kids? Okay, I'm going to say one, two, three, and then after three, I want you to say Merry Christmas. Just the kids, okay? One, two, three. I thought you were a grown person. Wow, that was, yeah, you were an adult there. That was amazing. Good job, kids. Excellent. It's so great to have you guys here. I hope you're uh, just having a good Christmas season. We've been driving around, looking at lights, looking at all sorts of stuff. I have been thankful for Christmas movies, like Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, thankful for the Peanuts gang up there. Um, if I didn't have them, I'd, like Snoopy, I'd probably go commercial, you know? Um, but today we're going to dive into the birth of Jesus. We're not going to do like a crazy in-depth, but I just want to just want to look at it. Kind of this tale as old as time, uh, an oldie but a goodie, but to get into it and maybe see it from a different perspective and bring out some stuff from it. But before we get into Luke 2, to wrap our heads around it, because I love the scriptures and because the scriptures talk about the scriptures. That's what I'm so passionate about is something from the Old Testament is always talked about in the New and something from the New you can look back in the Old So what I want to do is go back real quick to kind of get our heads around this thing to then get to Luke 2. So long ago, when the people of Israel first entered into the promised land, they grew into a thriving nation. Okay, they were thriving, they were people, but they felt like they needed a king. Now they had a prophet at the time, his name was Samuel, and Samuel said, why, why do you need a king? God has been leading you this whole time. God is your king. And they say, no, we want a king. First Samuel 8, 19 tells us the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So Samuel and the Lord gave them a king. His name was? Saul, right? We all we know. His name was Saul. He was tall and handsome and strong, everything you'd want in a king. But it didn't take long for Saul to start seeing himself as more of God than God. And Samuel knew this can't be right. So the word of the Lord comes to him. First Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel heads to Bethlehem to find this king. He is greeted by the elders of the town. He asks if Jesse and his sons can come out with him. So Samuel kind of gets ready for this king uh, ceremony, right? He sets up an altar. He consecrates Jesse and his sons. He provides a sacrifice, and then he prepares for the anointing of the new king. So Jesse's oldest son, okay, all the kids in the room, like, flex your muscles. Let me see your muscles. Okay, pretty good, pretty good. All right, he walks by Samuel. He says, I must be king. And Samuel even thought, surely, surely this is the king. First Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. So he rejects the oldest. And then each son walks in front of Samuel in turn, and he rejects all of them. And Samuel finally asks, is this, is this all you have? I came to see your family, your sons. Is this it? Well, Jesse says, there, 1611, there is still the youngest, Jesse answers. He is tending the sheep. He wasn't even brought 
He wasn't even considered to bring to the king anointing. Bring this young shepherd boy to me, Samuel says. David enters into the circle, and immediately the Lord says, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. See, from the beginning of this story, nothing was what was expected, right? The people's king, who looked like a king, was a disappointment. The sons, who looked like the king, were rejected. A lowly shepherd boy inheriting the mightiest position among God's people was unexpected. And then throughout the era and throughout the time, you see these prophecies pop up. Isaiah 11:1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then in Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There's an ancient proverb that says, The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. God has always been foreshadowing what his kingdom would look like, and it's different than anything man would recreate. There was but the taste of it in the garden before the breaking of the world, but the people continue to want to redream it up and build it for themselves. Now, fast forward to the great Roman Empire, one of the most successful and thorough conquerors to enter the world. The Roman emperor, Empire was vast, and during Caesar Augustus's reign, the land prospered and there was great peace and stability. To be able to ensure this stability and peace, there has to be order, okay? Order means giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. The nation of Israel now slowly has rebuilt itself but is living under this Roman Empire. Caesar calls for a worldwide census to be made where all the people in the land go to their hometowns according to their heritage. So this was a way so that people could properly be taxed on where they're from, not just where they're living. Okay, you guys following? This is what we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, where he was living, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Okay, like Samuel of old, Joseph is now sent to Bethlehem. For Joseph, it's seemingly obeying a command from an earthly ruler, but as we see the proverb, of course, guided by the sovereign God in his steps. So Joseph was of the lineage of David, marking him the carrier of this potential shoot of Jesse DNA, and he came to Bethlehem. Oh, and there's another prophecy, Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Back to Luke 2. Joseph went to Bethlehem, verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Do you see how all of a sudden all the pieces are coming together? It's funny how God's provision is rarely seen in the moment, but almost always looked back on and seen, man, God thoroughly put this together by his sovereign hand. There's more than one reason to suspect this is a big deal. But it all seems improbable, really just a simple carpenter with his wife-to-be, parents of the Messiah? Why would it not come from Caesar or someone important or powerful? 
Let's keep going. Luke 2, 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The baby foretold to them was born quietly, seemingly insignificant, gently, and lowly. We always talk about the humility of our Savior on the cross, but it's actually his birth that first reveals this humility. Why would God subject himself to an earthly birth? And as much as the contrast to what the Messiah deserved in the city of David was an equal contrast is who should herald in this good news. Luke 2, 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. The heavens suddenly open up, and of course it freaks them out, right? Fear not, the angel says, for I have good news. What's the news? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Right off the get-go, the heavenly being reveals the Savior's birth is unto you, for the shepherds. For unto you, O lowly shepherds, the Christ has come. The one the whole world has been waiting for has come for you. There's no way. I mean, why would we be of any significance to the Christ? The shepherds may be wondering. Now, you would think the sign that this is all happening and this is a good thing is, and, and a miracle is the angel standing in front of them. Like, why doesn't the angel just do, and here's your sign, and do a twirl and jazz hands, and ta-da, you know? Why doesn't he do that? But no, the angel says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That is the sign. The sign that you should believe is the most simple unelegant, messy situation. These shepherds, they live with sheep. Sheep are their best friends. They know what a manger is. The Christ is lying in a manger. The sign wasn't the angels themselves. The sign is that the kingdom of God was there presently, and it's not Rome. It's not power. It's not prestige. It's not even earthly peace, because Rome was doing that. It's not selfish. It's as innocent and as welcoming as a baby in a manger. Have you ever gone to visit a newborn baby? You guys done this? And you go and you look over the baby and the baby looks at you and then the baby says, I know what you did. You ever had that? You smell like beef and cheese. You sit on a throne of lies, to quote an elf, right? It's fascinating to think how well would it go for a shepherd to wander in from tending the flocks into Caesar's palace? to stare at a newborn baby. How well would that go for that shepherd? But here in the presence of true majesty, these simple shepherds were welcome. Now, this reminded me of something. And something hit me, and again, I've been watching a lot of Christmas movies. This reminded me of the claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger. You guys seen it? I don't know if I can recommend it. It's great, but Santa's kind of mean, so I just don't know if you really want to watch that. But in the movie, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer... Hermie and Yukon Cornelius, as you can see up there, they're traveling and they come to this island of misfit toys. Charlie in the box stops them and tells them where they are and that they should go and see the king of the island, King Moonracer. King Moonracer flies over the land, finding toys that don't fit in or are unwanted, and they bring them, he brings them to this island. Here they have a home, they have a place in life, 
but the toys are unhappy. When our three heroes go before the king, they ask if they too can be on the island, for they identify as misfits as well. The king tells them that this is not possible, for the land and the island is only for toys. But what they can do is they can go back and they can tell Santa about the island so he can find kind girls and boys who would take these toys. The ultimate goal for these toys is not to stay here, but to be in a home. For as they stand before King Moonracer and he says, a toy is never truly happy until it is loved by a child. Now, this is not a gospel-centered movie, right? But the principle is interesting, right? The toys were made for a purpose. The purpose of being a toy loved by a child. But these toys have faults, right? These toys aren't perfect, and therefore the children do not want them. Now the question kind of hits you a little bit. Is that a toy problem, or is that a heart of the child problem? Right? In the movie, the island of misfit toys is supposed to represent Rudolph and his friends, feeling unwanted in their own context, and the underlying principle that sometimes even a monster has no bite without teeth. So back to our story today. At first glance to the world, the shepherds are misfits, right? They belong in the fields with sheep, not in any royalty, of course not in that day, but in God's kingdom, the shepherds are no misfits. They are the heralds of the good news. They can identify with a manger. They can identify with a baby. They can identify with a young carpenter and his wife. The kingdom of God is not unattainable or far off. It's something they can identify with. This is a kind of kingdom that shepherds can understand. Shepherds were by no means theologians by study, but what they knew were the stars. Look at this picture. They were out in the night in open fields for most, if not all, of their lives. The heavens were something familiar to them, right? Maybe they had always had thoughts just like this, what's, just like us. What's out there? Is there life out there? Was God's kingdom just beyond the stars? But now the reality of the moment sets in. The heavens weren't just out there. The heavens were here in the form of a baby, the Christ. Now think about this with me, the relationship of the creator to the creation. A creator knows its creation by the life that has been given to it. But for the creator to, be, to actually become his own creation, to not be the creator for a period of time, wouldn't that make the creator understand creation even more? The creator became his own creation. The idea of this is mind-boggling. What kind of creator would subject themselves to live, by definition, beneath their status. Why would they do this? Remember when the angel told the shepherds, this will be a sign to you, and then their saying ends in because he'll be right there swaddled in cloths. But that phrase, this will be a sign to you, is actually an allusion back to the prophecy we read earlier. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. See, the incarnation of God is not just to experience what it's like to be the creation so that he can have empathy, but it's truly to be with us, to do life with us, because he loves us, because he loves you. If you're here today and you say, I am too dirty, I'm too, I have too much baggage, I have too much past pain or suffering. How can God really love me if he knows who I am or what I've done? If you identify with anything like that, 
Let me ask you, were the shepherds too dirty? Was the manger too filthy? Was a pregnant virgin too scandalous? If you're here today and you believe you are too messy for Jesus, hear this, you are not. Jesus' birth was messy. His parents were messy. His birthday party was animal shelter themed, okay? But the point is the Savior humbled himself to live with his people as one of them. Christ is with you in the messiness. Christ knows what vulnerable, weak, and helpless feels like. See, classic religion tells the story of a misfit who finds some enlightenment that elevates them to the holy, right? This is classic. We see this narrative all over the place in real religions and fantasy stories, or even some form of this like, kind of self-actualization where there's, there's no other being, but you find your inner self and then you elevate yourself to this holy status. The truth of the scriptures is that we can never ascend to holy on our own. We just can't. There's not enough sacrifices or enough kind deeds or enough of the right words to say, but the reality of the Christmas story is that the holy became a misfit. The perfect became messy for you, for me, for the shepherds, for everyone, right? Because of God's love. It was love that made him promise all these things to come true. It was God's love that kept these promises throughout the ages, and it's because of his love that he has come to be with his people. John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He loves the world to save the world. And much like the shepherds' hearts were changed upon meeting this child and hearing the good news, they can't contain themselves. This is not a secret for them to keep. This is a joy to be shared. Now with us today, in the 21st century, we are more connected to the world than we have ever been before. We know other countries like we know what's happening in our backyards. We can look and see how other people are doing. Today we have the opportunity to live into that spreading of joy with each other in this place right now, right? To share in the lavish love of Jesus through praise and worship that he is restoring Albany, that he is restoring all things to himself. We also, in that, we get to then be a blessing. We get to bless local and international nonprofits as we continue to spread the joy and give outside of ourselves, right? Just today, as an example, through our joy offering today, we get to be a part of Jesus's restoration as we bless others with generosity. None of this is possible without the love and grace of Jesus Christ. As we think about this Christmas season and a time of chaos and all the desires that we have, let's keep this on the forefront of our minds. Jesus alone is the Prince of Peace. He alone is the chief shepherd of his people. And this same love and grace that so long ago worked in David to make a simple shepherd a king. I want to end with the same prayer that David had as he is changed and formed from the inside out. The greatest gift that Jesus could give us was new life in him, right? To make it possible. The holy became a misfit so that misfits could have new life in him. And I want to pray this prayer. This isn't a traditional Christmas prayer, and most of you have heard Psalm 23 before. But as you think about this in the context of just Christmas and the desires and the wants of your heart, I just pray that this is on our mind and on our heart. Would you actually stand with me as I read Psalm 23 over us today? 
and then we will go into responding. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can have a seat. Today we're going to respond in singing, in prayer, in giving, in receiving. We're going to do it all just in one fell swoop. Not only Christ's sacrifice to bring the heavens to us as a baby, but his sacrificial victory on the cross that has made new life possible with him. All praise goes to Christ. Let me pray and let's just party and respond to him today.